is something that wasn't on the radar during the election campaign. I wonder if we could start first with the issue of the smoke-free legislation, which, which I understand was a New Zealand first policy, not a national party policy, but you agreed to the scrapping of this. Where's the good bit in this? The smoking change, you on board? Um, well, again, it was a big issue for New Zealand First and Act. Um, for us, we weren't on board with the ch- some of the changes that the government had proposed with the legislation. Winston Peters and David Seymour were reportedly insistent that ciggies remain widely available, while National need people to keep lighting up to help pay for their tax cuts. So for the new government, it's thank you for smoking. A coalition policy that will see world-first, groundbreaking anti-smoking legislation repealed. Health experts are furious, labelling the move vile and devastating. They've been sideswiped by the plans to get rid of amendments to our smoke-free legislation that would have taken tobacco products out of most dairies, lowered the nicotine levels in cigarettes and denied sales to anyone born after January the 1st, 2009. That was a world-leading policy that was going to save thousands and thousands of lives. It just feels like a huge step backwards. This is a terrible day for New Zealand's health system. More people will suffer. There'll be more people in our hospitals. More people will die. I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail, what's behind the new government's move to scrap legislation that looked so world-beating it's being copied by the UK? I want to create the first smoke-free generation. So we will change the law to ensure children turning 14 or younger this year can never legally be sold cigarettes in their lifetime. Let's look first at why the government's making this move. Here's our new finance minister, Nicola Willis. The logic from both ACT and New Zealand First when they came to the negotiating table was their concern that changes planned for the future to those laws would have a couple of uh, nasty side effects. One, they were concerned about the emergence of a big black market for tobacco, unregulated, untaxed. Mm. Second, they were concerned that by vastly reducing the number of retail outlets to around 600, that we could see a huge increase in retail crime, ram raids, people putting, being put in danger. So the coalition partners, New Zealand First and ACT, think Labour's smoke-free law changes will create a black market and increase crime. And the Prime Minister seems to agree with that. I think when you limit distribution to the point that they were going to, you just create a massive black market that becomes untaxed. And also you actually create a huge risk of more ram raids and more crime. But for National, there's another reason. Coming back to those extra sources of revenue and other savings areas that will help us to fund the tax reduction, we have to remember that the changes uh, to the smoke-free legislation had a significant impact on the government books uh, with about a billion dollars there. Nicola Willis is saying that the smoke-free law changes of the previous government would have meant a drop in tax revenue of a billion dollars. Fewer smokers, decreased tobacco sales means less money for the government. We're not talking piddly amounts here. The tax on a packet of cigarettes is about 70% of its price. That amount is 1.1% of total tax revenue. And it would, as Willis pointed out, help fund National's promised tax cuts. Although, the day after that interview on News Hub Nation, she walked it back on Q&A. Well, I just want to take you back a step because the logic for the smoke-free changes is not about tax revenue. One of the few positive reactions to this decision so far has been from the London office of the Consumer Choice Centre. 
This organisation, which describes itself as an advocacy group championing individual freedom and consumer choice, applauded the decision as a victory for choice and intelligent policy making. The Consumer Choice Centre gets funding from the tobacco industry. So does New Zealand's Save Our Stores, which has been campaigning against the change on the basis it would see the end of their businesses. Well, a series of social media ads warning that local dairies could close are actually the work of tobacco companies. The Save Our Stores campaign features dairy owners who say the rules coming into force in July next year will force thousands of stores to close. Big Tobacco have been caught out running a campaign online on social media called Save Our Shops, supposedly fronted by an Indian dairy owner from the Hutt Valley that was ended up asking people to sign a petition against the government's plan to reduce the number of retail outlets for full-strength tobacco from 6,000 to 600. What happens, the people who come to buy uh, those cigarettes or tobacco, they also buy a lot of other stuff. So currently the tobacco is, is nearly 50% of the revenue for the businesses. The personal freedom argument does have some backers. Smoking has been decreasing since the 80s. It has been declining dramatically across all metrics. People don't have to smoke. Nobody does. You know, if you want to start smoking, that is a choice. You've got all the facts in front of you. You've got all the the health risks that are proved beyond a doubt in front of you. If you choose to buy an overpriced packet of cigarettes, then that's on you. The health industry, however, was universally shocked by the decision, which was hidden away as the 16th bullet point on page 8 of the 15-page New Zealand First Coalition document, and also on page 8, bullet point 21, on ACTS agreement. Here's Otago University's Professor Janet Hook, a smoke-free researcher. When I heard that one of the reasons why the proposal was to repeal them was to fund tax cuts, I thought it's just hard to imagine a more cynical and callous decision. I think it's incredibly disappointing that the incoming Prime Minister had a chance to show really strong moral leadership and instead what we have is a capitulation to an agenda where the only beneficiaries are going to be tobacco companies. And this is Professor Chris Bullen from the School of Population Health at Auckland University. I felt like buying a one-way ticket out of New Zealand. I mean, seriously, I was just, I couldn't believe it. He's a public health physician who's been researching, teaching and thinking about smoking-related issues for 20 years. And of course, a big backer of our smoke-free legislation. What was world-leading about it was three elements. The the first one is um, a dramatic reduction in the number of retailers um, legally allowed to sell tobacco. That hasn't been done to this extent at a nation, national level anywhere else. This is we're talking about a sort of ninety percent reduction from about you know six thousand retailers down to about five hundred and ninety nine I think is the number they've landed on. So that would mean only 25 retail outlets in the city of Auckland, for example. So that's number one. Number two is the um, only tobacco cigarettes or loose tobacco for sale in New Zealand legally would have the nicotine removed from it. It would only be what's called denicotinized tobacco, uh, which is at a level 
that means that people can't become addicted no matter how much they try and suck and puff they wouldn't be able to get enough nicotine to develop nicotine dependence which is what drives sustained cigarette smoking and leads to all the harm and that would be all cigarettes smoked in new zealand or sold in new zealand would have that reduction in nicotine correct correct and then the third one was what's called the smoke-free generation so it would be illegal to sell tobacco products to anybody born after January 1, 2009, here on. Well, that was meant to come in from 2027, but effectively, because those young people are currently in their mid-teens, it's kind of live now as we speak. And Australia and the UK were both looking at those measures. Well, uh, certainly the UK um, is looking at other countries have looked at similar sorts of legislation. Some of them have looked at age cutoffs, and some countries or states or jurisdictions have introduced what are called T21 rules, such as you know you turn 21, then you can buy tobacco. I think the way we were looking at it here in New Zealand is a better way because it removes the idea that once you turn a certain age, it's okay. Uh, we're saying this is a defective product that kills more than half the people who use it long term. Therefore, we're going to do something about it. Um, and, you know, you won't be able to be sold this product legally um, if you're born after a certain age until essentially turning the tap off of the pool of people who smoke tobacco over the long term. And were the majority of health experts in favour of those policies? Were there many sticking points in them? No, the majority of health experts, both in New Zealand and globally, uh, amazed that New Zealand was actually able to get this across the line and are totally supportive because it's backed by decades of research conducted here in New Zealand and overseas. And we were the envy until a few days ago of the rest of uh, the global tobacco control community. So they are equally horrified by this turn of events. We've had many experts who weighed in on this during the um, the lead into introducing this legislation. To re- so to repeal it, um, for, I can't really see any good reason. Is it's just beyond belief. Look, uh, I mean, I'm just shocked that he can be so completely out of touch with the evidence. And these comments simply don't reflect what we know from research. I mean, they just reflect the lame arguments that tobacco companies peddle. What's the point of having a doctor as a health minister if the first thing they do is repeal a law that would have saved 5,000 people's lives? People who haven't really, um, I don't believe, looked at the weight of evidence are making trade-offs in order to get political power is that your first example of having to argue for something you don't really believe in, but kind of in an MMP way you sort of have to front up anyway? No, it's a function of there were some things in that legislation even before the election that we as a national party didn't support all aspects of that legislation either. These are trade-offs that will have consequences for many, many people and set us back in New Zealand by some years. The, the advantage of these policies was that they would accelerate the decline in smoking in New Zealand very quickly, and particularly for Māori and Pacific people. So there are major health equity in initiative that would tackle inequities in smoking and smoking-related disease. It's not just for individuals who smoke, but also for people exposed to their smoke um, by you know by years, if not decades. So now, if we go back to where we were before, which was positive, trending downwards in smoking, but very very incrementally, these steps were going to lead to a sharp, sudden, dramatic decline and particularly for Māori and Pacific people.
there was a lot of reaction that said, well, we didn't hear about this in pre it wasn't in pre-election promises. Mm-hmm. Where did this come from? But it was actually in um, New Zealand First's pre-election literature. NZ First will repeal and replace 2022 Smoked Tobacco Amendment and 2023 regulations put in place by Labour to achieve an illusory Smoke 3 2025. Is that... Well, it's, you know... (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't read that. And, of course, you know, I was surprised that New Zealand First represented in the government. So I guess even if I had read it, I probably wouldn't imagine that it would um, seriously translate into a decision. I mean... What it flies in the face of is the fact that it was under a national government that the smoke-free 2025 goal was set. Under a national government, um, the uh, legislation was agreed to last year. Um, you know, they disagreed around some minor points about the sequencing of the denicotinization. In fact, Dr. Betty, the new Minister for Health, thought that denicotinization should happen first. Um, so he supported it. But now... Um, by virtue of uh, a minority of people who supported New Zealand First, we've now got um, a complete reversal of that policy. And that's going to condemn many, many people to ongoing suffering and disease and disability for years to come. So there's blood on the hands here of our political leaders, and um, I'm just a shot. I'm, I'm aghast. But what about the increased crime argument? Well, that just doesn't wash with Chris. One of the arguments has been that if we go down the retailer reduction, you know, there'll be 25 stores legally allowed to sell tobacco and using they'll become the targets for ram raids. But the tobacco they'll be able to sell will be denicotinized tobacco in the, um, by 2025, um, according to the original act that's under threat, uh, the only tobacco they could sell would be denicotinized, so it wouldn't be particularly attractive to criminal gangs to want to take because there wouldn't be much of a market for it anyway. David Seymour says that doing this means it won't force tobacco onto the black market. Is that yes. a possible outcome? That's another argument. And, you know, the government has supported research, and I'm just put my hand up to declare that I've been leading some research for the Ministry of Health to track the illicit trade in tobacco over the next four years as these policies were going to be rolled out because, you know, it's fair fair enough to be concerned about this. But at the, the, the last 10 years, for the last 10 years, um, the our measures of the trade in illegal tobacco, as best we can estimate it, suggests that it's been declining um, pretty much year on year, although with a few exceptions when some major seizures have occurred at the border from people trying to smuggle in cigarettes um, in you know containers and that sort of thing. But Customs has had a boost of funding to support a specialist tobacco uh, team to intercept these seizures and the penalties for seizures are going to go up under the new legislation. So I don't think it's going to be worth anybody's effort. There's much more money to be made if you're a criminal in trying to get other kinds of drugs um, into the country. So you don't see that as a valid argument? No, and in the past, when we had, um, you know, other bits of legislation, tax increases uh, year on year, there's been no evidence that there's been a boost to the illegal trade as a result of these uh, interventions in policy. Um, so again, these are the kind of arguments that the tobacco industry feeds to its proxies, uh, either politicians or. Um, you know, associations of store owners and others with commercial interests in selling tobacco. 
One of the big reactions on social media to this was that people seeing the hand of Chris Bishop, who was a tobacco lobbyist. We have a rare interview with tobacco giant Philip Morris, which owns Marlboro, the world's biggest selling brand of cigarette. I'll talk to New Zealand spokesman Christopher Bishop. Is that fair? Well, I, uh, well, I don't know um, really what to say about that. Mr Bishop can declare his links and interests, and he, as he should. Um, but it's on record that he was once employed by a tobacco company. Um, more of concern to me is, you know, the other influence through other entities such as the Dairy Owners um, Group and um, other organisations that don't make it very clear where their information and funding is coming from. And that needs to be have a light shed on it so that people can understand that these arguments have got conflicts of interest behind them. Nicola Willis also was on TV saying that, you know, she was asked to say, well, where are, your, where are you going to plug the gap in your funding the tax cuts? And one of the things she mentioned was by repealing this, there'd be more tax money coming in from cigarettes. How do you react to that? That, that made, I almost fell off my chair when I heard her say that. Uh, I thought that was the most cold calculating kind of comment. Uh, and I, I've... Um, yeah, <laughs> I was gobsmacked. That's just a terrible trade-off to make. People's lives for some tax savings to, um, yeah, it's not not right. Um, the cost to the healthcare of cont- having people continue to smoke is actually quite substantial. We're talking about estimates of $1.2 billion over the next 20 years, and people might say, well, that's not much. But actually, if those people were alive, they would be earning and they would be paying tax. So there's actually more than $1.2 billion. Uh, of, of you know, So there are benefits in people stopping smoking so they can live and continue to be productive. Most people who die from tobacco smoking actually die in their productive working years of life. Is it true that the tax collected from selling cigarettes pays for the health care of cigarette damage? Uh, not in New Zealand. It's not my understanding is that we take taxation and it is not earmarked to address the problems that are caused by it. Specifically, it, my understanding is it goes into the, the general uh, fund. And from that general fund, some of the money may be earmarked for promoting you know, not smoking and supporting people to quit smoking and so forth. But um, the tax take is bigger than uh, the money that's spent on trying to prevent harm from tobacco or treatment. So she's right in a way that it's a it's a... A better mathematical calculation for the government to to allow cigarettes to be sold in some ways, but I mean, I think you know you take a, a broader view of if you're a, just looking at the cost alone, but that's the healthcare cost. Um, that I was talking about the one point two billion as a healthcare cost, but it doesn't take into account you know the suffering, disability, the loss to families, the loss of um, knowledge and cultural heritage and all the other, you know, consequential effects and impacts from people dying prematurely from smoking. And I guess, too, when you look at this, it's poor people who suffer the most because they are addicted, they have to spend on their cigarettes, there's no spending for food, that kind of thing. Absolutely. It's um, what we call a social gradient 
in smoking it means that poorer people are much more likely to be smokers the other communities obviously we've talked about maori and pacific smoking rates are much higher in those population groups on average but also people with mental health conditions um, have much higher smoking rates than the rest of the population and they're more likely to die from diseases caused by their smoking than from their mental health conditions a lot of smokers don't even want to smoke but they're stuck there because of the addiction mm. because of the product itself uh, and they certainly don't want their kids um, and family smoking. It's not so much about you know some magical goal or a competition with other countries, any of that. It's about saving people's lives. And we're you know we've got another pandemic here. This is a slow-moving pandemic of cigarette smoking and its harms. But we need to use all the tools that we used to fight COVID, in a sense, or their their parallels. And you know, which is about leadership and about taking evidence from research and data and putting that in place and about the collective, you know, behavior of our community um, acting in concert to to try and um, get rid of this, this harmful product once and for all. I mean, would we tolerate defective cars being on the road for all these years? You know, imagine if a car company manufactured a car that killed 50% of the people who drove it for more than five or 10 years. It would be off the road. What is the answer to the what about questions? What about alcohol? Oh, you mean, uh, you know, why, why not do this? Well, we should. I mean, there's plenty of evidence, royal commissions and, you know, law commission, sorry, the, the, the various um, bodies of reports um, over the years that have laid out the, the massive harms and now you know, relatively new evidence that suggests that alcohol is a carcinogen. So I think it's time will come and, um, you know, we're not going to get rid of alcohol. I'm not a wowser at all, but it's about reducing the power of these industries to market their products to people in a way that presents them as being attractive and normalised and so forth when they're patently not. Alcohol-related harm is huge in New Zealand. It's the most impactful, you know, drug on the market and, um we, yes, we need to step up and do something about that, as well as tobacco. But tobacco is kind of on its way out. We just want to hasten the day. Yeah. And we've got the opportunity to do it. We know what the tools are, how they work. We've got the evidence behind it. Let's just do it. And a final message for the new government. Get ready for a fight. I think this new government has underestimated the public and uh, health professional communities. um support for the smoke-free legislation and the international community's support of New Zealand's leadership in this area. And um, we're not going to take this lying down, I can tell you. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The details supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Sharon Brick-Halley and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Chris Bullen. Mā te wā.